Hey guys, it's Tana. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Oddity Podity. This weekend, I ease on down to the Big Easy to visit a place that I've heard about but never gotten the chance to tour. It seems kind of silly that I never set foot inside a place that one would assume is right up my alley. But there's always so much to do in the quarter, so much to eat and drink, that I always ran out of time and sobriety. But in last week's episode, we talked about yellow fever and the thousands of lives it claimed in New Orleans in the late 1800s. And it got me thinking about the history of disease and illness and how modern medicine has doubled our life expectancy and greatly enhanced our quality of life as well. Most of us can't even appreciate it like our ancestors would because we've always lived in a time where medicine is readily available and suffering from a lot of diseases that used to kill us is no longer necessary. This is what I thought I'd find inside the Museum of Death in New Orleans, a history of disease and illness and the medicines that cured it. Because you guys know I'm all about the history and the haunt. However, this is not at all what the museum was about, not even a little. What I actually discovered was so macabre, so morbidly fascinating, that I decided to do a whole episode about it. So if you were thinking what I was thinking, think again and keep listening, because what is actually inside the Museum of Death is beyond belief. said this before. We humans are obsessed with death. We live in constant fear of it, maybe because we're not 100% sure of what comes next, if it'll hurt, if all our friends are going to be there, and if there's a Walmart nearby in case we need snacks. The uncertainty of the end is terrifying, but we also pursue it. We get a thrill out of riding roller coasters, driving too fast, jumping out of airplanes, and clinging to our buddies while we scream our way through the JC's Halloween Haunted House every year. Even the most mild-mannered among us still occasionally walk on the wild side by indulging in a scary movie from time to time. I think this is why true crime podcasts, serial killer documentaries, movies about natural disasters, and stuff like that always draw such an audience. It's that literal train wreck that you can't look away from. It's grotesque and horrific and makes you thankful that you weren't a passenger on that train, even though you know deep down that you actually are a passenger on another train destined for the same fate. We all are. Death is a natural part of our life cycle, but we still fear it. I think, more specifically, we fear dying in pain. We all want to go out like Jack told Rose in the Titanic. He said, you're going to die an old lady, warm in her bed. Yes, we all want to die old and warm in a bed like Rose did, and not like Jack went out, freezing his tail off in the ocean while Rose hogged that piece of wood that they both totally could have fit on. Let's be honest, you guys. We all blame Rose for Jack's death. She should have let him on that piece of wood. But the truth is, only one in eight people die peacefully in their sleep each year. And even then, some of those are from carbon monoxide poisoning. The rest of us will get taken out in some other form or fashion. And I think this is exactly why those scary movies are so alluring. They give us new and creative ways to worry about getting killed. So when I learned that there was a whole museum of death in New Orleans, I had to check it out. Like I said in the intro, I thought it would be a historical tour of disease and illness, which I would have dug. I don't know why I thought that or why I didn't look into it further before I went. But in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't because it made the tour all that more impactful. Before I tell you what I saw there, let me give you a little background on the Museum of Death. 
According to Wikipedia, the museum was originally established in 1995 in San Diego in a building that was the city's first mortuary. Founders J.D. Healy and Catherine Schultz said that their purpose was to make people happy to be alive. Early on, J.D. and Catherine wrote letters to serial killers in prison and displayed their responses, as well as their artwork, in a yearly exhibit, which eventually grew to become a permanent museum. In 1999, J.D. and Catherine got their hands on evidence from the Heaven's Gate cult suicides and attempted to recreate the crime scene in a display. This display included the original beds that the cult members died in. The press and the public were totally into it, but J.D. and Catherine's landlords, not so much. It got them kicked out of their San Diego digs, but this turned out to be a good thing because they soon found a new place at 6031 Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. Turns out the place also used to be a recording studio where Pink Floyd and other famous artists worked. The wall-deadening acoustics in that building were perfect for creating the still-as-the-dead atmosphere, and the rest is history. The Museum of Death has been there ever since. Over the years, it's acquired and displayed such artifacts as the mummified head of serial killer Henri Landru, also known as the Bluebeard of Gambais. Landru murdered at least 10 women and one man in the village of Gambais between 1914 and 1919, though that number is believed to be a lot higher. His wife and four children were accused of helping him cover up the crimes, with one of his sons actually acting as his apprentice and his wife forging the names of his victims so the family could drain the dead women's bank accounts. In February of 1922, Landru was convicted of the murders, and he was immediately executed in Versailles, France, by that old French favorite, the guillotine. Five years later, his family failed to make their payment on his burial plot, so his body and head were exhumed and reburied in an unmarked grave somewhere else. Apparently, it was during this exhumation that someone made off with his head, and it eventually found its way to the Museum of Death. In 2014, the museum had amassed such a huge collection, which now included something called the Thanatron. If you know the Greek language, you've already guessed that that word means death machine. The Thanatron was a contraption built by Dr. Jack Kevorkian, a pathologist who assisted in the suicides of 130 people before he was convicted of murder in 1999. Essentially, Dr. Kevorkian would roll up to your house in a 1968 VW van that looked like the Scooby-Doo mystery machine, but instead of opening the doors and letting a suspicious cloud of smoke roll out, Dr. K would load you into the van and introduce you to the Thanatron. He'd hook you up to an IV with a saline drip, and whenever you felt you were ready, you could press a button on the Thanatron, which would inject a dose of theopentol into your veins. This would put you into a coma, at which point the Thanatron then injected you with a lethal dose of potassium chloride, which would stop your heart. Essentially, it was an automated lethal injection machine, as it's the same chemical that's used on inmates who are executed on death row. And somehow, J.D. and Catherine got a hold of it to share with the world inside their museum. On another note, Zach Baggins of Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures bought that VW van that Dr. Kevorkian used to haul the Thanatron around in. According to an article in the Detroit Free Press, Zach plans to use the van for a, quote, paranormal project. Stay tuned for that. At this point in 2014, J.D. and Catherine had accumulated so much that they could only display one-third of their collection at a time inside the museum. So they decided to open a second museum at 227 Dauphine Street in New Orleans. True to the city's historical French culture, they called this branch Musée du Mort Orleans, and it boasts about 12,000 square meters of unadulterated death memorabilia. This is where my journey began this past Thursday. 
Like I said, I didn't check Wikipedia for any background on the museum before I went. I kind of wanted to go in with no preconceived notions, even though I did preconceive some of my own notions with that whole yellow fever history of disease thing. The New Orleans Museum of Death was none of that. They also didn't allow photography or videography, so I took notes of everything I saw the old-fashioned way on the Notes app on my phone. And here's how it went. When you first enter the exhibit, it's reminiscent of the Museum of Natural History, albeit a really macabre version. There are skeletons on display, both human and animal, and large posters of human anatomy and organ systems. I guess to prepare you for what you're about to see. Although I had no way of knowing it at the time, I feel like this somewhat mundane intro was designed to kind of desensitize you for what was about to come next. In retrospect, this was the case for every section of the exhibit. It grew progressively more intense as you went. Just as you got acclimated to the shock of what you saw and didn't think it could get worse, it sure enough did. Like I said, there was a bunch of skellies, including this big old hippopotamus skull, which was interesting. And then we moved on to some early attempts at taxidermy. There's this giant alligator skin, a water buffalo head, and for some reason, a taxidermied horse head. Yeah, someone had decided to stuff and mount a horse, and they had not done a very good job of it. Its poor mouth had been sewn closed with the stitches on the outside of its lips. Then came the mummified cat, which sat next to a shelf containing several jars that held floating animals in formaldehyde. Fetal pigs and goats a six-toed cat, and a set of kitten twins. There were also jars that held human organs. A human brain, heart, lung, and kidney were all on display, in case you ever wanted to see those things up close and personal-like. Just when I was starting to get mildly nauseated, I was granted a reprieve in the next section, which housed serial killer memorabilia. Hanging on the walls of this section was original art by John Wayne Gacy and Henry Lee Lucas. A lot of you have probably seen John Wayne Gacy's famous clown art, some of which were displayed alongside more obscure works by that literal monster. But have you ever seen Henry Lee Lucas's art? It's not great. There was a painting of either Johnny Cash or George Jones. I'm not sure which one it was supposed to be because he looked like the nightmare version who was about to eat your soul. Ditto for the rendition of Elvis. Makes sense that a serial killer could make some of music's most legendary heroes look like serial killers too. He truly managed to make these much-loved men look evil. But to me, it gave a glimpse into the sick and twisted world vision that these men had. In their minds, evil was everywhere, and that was clearly reflected in their art. There were also letters from Daniel Harold Rowling, otherwise known as the Gainesville Ripper, Richard Kuklinski, a.k.a. the Iceman, and Dennis Lynn Rader, more infamously known as the BTK Killer. BTK also had some janky-looking art on display, as did a man named Michael Ronning. In 1986, Michael Ronning stabbed 19-year-old Diana Lynn Hanley to death in Jonesboro, Arkansas. When he was captured, he confessed to murdering six more young women and teenage girls and dumping their bodies in wooded areas. This one hit home for me, both literally and figuratively, as I had no idea that we had a serial killer in our midst at the time because he was caught in Randolph County, less than 20 miles from where 11-year-old me lived at the time. This dirtbag is currently serving life without parole at the Arkansas Department of Corrections. His artwork sucks, and so does he. Other art that sucks on display was created by serial killer Charles Lee Duffy and the son of Sam, David Berkowitz. A bit stranger in this section was the display of a bra and a pair of panties that were worn by female serial killer Eileen Wernros. 
let the record state that both were disturbingly stained. Also, a jar containing the pickled organs of convicted murderer Derek Todd Lee was there. After these displays, I had to wonder if one needed a special permit from the Department of Health to do so. That bra and panty set seemed like an especially dangerous hazmat. Anyway, I want to say that I'm not a fan of glorifying serial killers. Those who fangirl and boy out over these sickos is really weird to me, but what did interest me about this exhibit was getting a glimpse into their minds. It was glaringly obvious through their words and their art that their brains were completely not in the right and that they did not and do not exist on the same plane of reality that the rest of us do. That's something to remain cognizant of when you're dealing with someone who feels off to you. Trust that gut instinct and give those sort of people a wide berth because those demons do walk amongst us. Anyway, jumping off the soapbox and moving on to the next section of the exhibit where there was a display on the process of autopsy, undertaking, and burial practices. Lining the wall up high close to the ceilings were replicas of the death masks of famous people like Abraham Lincoln, Marlon Brando, Clark Gable, Humphrey Bogart, and more. A death mask is the likeness of a person's face after their death, usually made by putting wax or plaster over the corpse's face and making an impression of it. Death masks were used to make mementos of the dead or sometimes to make their portraits of them after they died. Inside a glass display were two actual death masks that someone found at an estate auction. My mom often buys skids of stuff at auction, and she's not completely 100% sure about what's inside until she gets it home and opens it all. Can you imagine cracking open a box of old dresses and crap and uncovering the face of a dead person? Well, someone got a surprise exactly like this. There's also a wax replica of the death mask of Napoleon Bonaparte. He had surprisingly small teeth. In the next section of glass displays, there are all of the tools that one used to drain a body of its fluids and all of the tools one used to pump embalming chemicals back into it. I've said this before, but I had the honor of working with an undertaker once and it 100% convinced me to be cremated. No one is stuffing anything into my orifices without my permission. And if you saw these tools, you'd probably agree. Above the display cases were actual photos of an autopsy so you got the full visual. If you ever wondered what an open skull looked like with its brain removed, this is it. There are also photos of mummified human remains that have been exhumed, as well as old-timey photos of people in their caskets. Apparently, this was a whole thing back in the day, and they made these glass caps that look like eyeballs, and they placed it into the open eye sockets of the dead so that they could have their pics taken with their eyes open. And yeah, there were a bunch of these pics of people laying in their caskets with their eyes wide open. Some of these glass eye caps were on display as well, as well as some really fancy bedazzled eye covers that others used, I guess, because they didn't want to have their eyes opened. I'm not kidding. Some of these were made of black satin and rhinestones, which is exactly the kind I'd demand to wear if I wanted to be embalmed and not burned up. They look like really high class sleeping masks for your eternal sleep. So just when you got acclimated to all this Victorian era weirdness, you were jolted back to horror by a display that dealt with dead children. Yes, there was a whole display on that, complete with photos of babies that looked like they were sleeping peacefully but were actually in caskets. It's easy for us to judge this as completely bonkers, but remember that this was a time when infant mortality was 50%, and often these photos were all that a family had left to memorialize their lost child. This makes it more understandable, but no less saddening. 
In the very back of the room is what was called the theater of death, which was a literal theater with red velvet lined pews that you could sit in and watch a big screen TV running a movie about murders, complete with graphic crime scene photos. In the corner of that room was a voodoo shrine where you could offer your thanks to those who have passed. And at the top of that was a photo of our most recent famously departed Queen Elizabeth. Of all the things I didn't expect, this was a biggie. It's absolutely not for the faint of heart, so you've been forewarned if you visit the museum. The problem is, at the very back of the theater is the bathroom, which I desperately needed to use after having the pee scared out of me. Unbeknownst to me, the museum was about to get worse, much, much worse. After you exit the theater of death, you enter an area where the walls are lined with crime scene photos of every imaginable kind of death. There were people who died by beatings, strangulation, drug overdose, and there was even a guy who'd been murdered by disembowelment, with his insides resting on his lap. It was explained that up until the early 1970s, these extremely graphic photos were printed in public papers. So as shocking as it was for me to see this in a place clearly labeled Museum of Death, which I paid actual money to enter, Imagine how horrible it would be to see first thing in the morning when you're just trying to enjoy your Wheaties with the funny pages. Right after this was a large display of photos of car accidents, most of which were taken by the Florida Highway Patrol. It was extremely graphic, and I won't go into detail, but it was a grim reminder of the dangers of drinking and driving and why you should wear your seatbelt. Beneath these photos was a glass case with a display that was, for me, the most traumatic and horrifying part of the museum tour. It pertained to the death of a woman named Linda Carr, also known as Linda Cardoso. In the 1980s, Linda was a model and a BDSM performer. While I could not find any information about her on Google, the display had a modeling photo of her, and of course she was very beautiful. That photo was a stark contrast to the photos that police took of her when they found her dead body. She was dressed in high heels and a purple nightie with a plastic bag that was wrapped around her head. It's believed that she died of either autoerotic asphyxiation or a version of it that went bad. What was so awful about it, aside from the obvious, was that it looked like it had taken a minute for her to be found and decomposition had begun to set in. This had made the bag around her head fill with some dark fluid that horribly distorted her beautiful face. The police and autopsy reports said that they were unable to determine if it was a murder or an accident in which her partner had fled from, but in any case, it was horribly sad, and for some reason it really got to me, despite all that I'd already seen in the museum. Straight after that was another kick in the gut with actual crime scene and autopsy photos of Nicole Brown Simpson, as well as materials from the crime scene. It was shockingly graphic, and all of this made me wonder how in the world cops can do their jobs without major psychological counseling. Could not do. There were also photos of the corpse of Benito Mussolini and his mistress, both covered in blood. Equally shocking was a close-up photo of JFK's head on an autopsy table with his eyes wide open and glazed over. Directly beneath this was a full-length photo of his murderer, Lee Harvey Oswald, also on the autopsy table. Like I said, it was full length and his wide incision was on display. This photo was taken in the morgue inside Parkland Hospital in Dallas. So when I finally saw Dr. Kevorkian's Thanatron death machine for myself, it was pretty anticlimactic for obvious reasons. But the Thanatron was a short-lived reprieve because immediately after I passed by it, I came to the Charles Manson display. 
His blue jean shirt with a scorpion and the letters B and the numbers 33920 stamped on its breast was somewhat interesting, but the display below it was anything but meh. It contained the crime scene and autopsy photos of one of his victims, Abigail Folger. Abigail was an heiress to the Folger's Coffee Company, and she was brutally murdered on August 9, 1969 by the Manson family. After getting over the shock of seeing those photos, the mummified head of an African prince and a bunch of shrunken heads seemed like no big deal. But little did I know that I'd stumbled into the final section of the museum, which was all about cannibalism. Like I said, just when I thought the place would chill out a bit, it only got worse. Playing on a television screen in the corner of the room was a documentary about serial killers who cannibalized their victims, and I'd been fortunate enough to hit it while they were discussing Andrei Chikatilo, who was a Soviet serial killer nicknamed the Butcher of Rostov. After sexually assaulting and murdering his victims, Chikatilo described how he liked to nibble on his victims' uteruses. For the love of all that is holy, my God, why? I yeeted right the hell away from it then and there into an equal hell of a display about other cannibals like Albert Fish, Ed Gein, and of course, Jeffrey Dahmer. In a move that I will forever regret, I gazed upon crime scene photos of Dahmer's apartment, which included the severed hands, head, and penis of one of his victims neatly laid out next to each other, and another of a man whose torso had been gutted and field dressed like a deer. That was enough for me. And thankfully, just in time, as it was the end of the tour. Except for a bunch of posters about a 1970s movie called Survive. The movie was about what happened to the survivors of the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. In 1972, a rugby team was on that flight en route to a game when the plane crashed in the Andes Mountains. Of the 45 passengers on board, 33 actually survived the crash. The survivors battled blizzards, avalanches, infections, frostbite, and of course, starvation. With the weather too cold to support any kind of wildlife, they resorted to eating shoes, the plane seats, and even other parts of the plane before finally resorting to cannibalism. After 73 days of being stranded in these brutal conditions, they were finally rescued, but at that point, only 16 people remained alive. Perhaps to redeem myself a little, when I got home, I watched the 1993 remake of this film starring Ethan Hawke, which was called Alive. It was a much gentler telling of the story, and I appreciated it for not over-sensationalizing the accident and its aftermath and what the survivors did to stay alive. If I had any critique about the Museum of Death, it would be to remove this particular part of the display from the Dahmer area because the two incidents of cannibalism were absolutely not the same. Aside from that, the Museum of Death was a shocking but educational take on that which we all fear most. I learned that serial killers are as terrible artists as they are people, that the Victorians were a bunch of morbid weirdos, that crime scene investigators aren't paid nearly enough for what they do, and that my decision to be cremated is definitely the correct one. The museum also had a nifty gift shop with some cool art, t-shirts, and trinkets that you can snag to commemorate your trip, as well as one that says something along the lines of, I lost my lunch at the Museum of Death, which, if I'd have eaten lunch before I went in, I would have needed to buy. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this virtual tour of the New Orleans Museum of Death, and that if you're making a trip up to NOLA in the future, you drop by and check it out, if your stomach can handle it, that is. I'm warning you, it's really, really graphic. As always, thank you so much for spending your time with me today. 
I hope that you'll come back and see me again next week, same time, same place, for a little more history and a little more haunt. I'll see y'all then.